May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. What do you really, I mean really, desire? I'm going to confess that often I don't actually know and even when I think I know what I want, it turns out to be something quite unholy, like a pint of salt and straw ice cream. Actually, I think that probably is fairly holy, just not terribly healthy. So I find myself saying, like the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. You got all that? Okay. <laughs> Lent can, if we choose to let, us, let it, bring us into intimate relationship with the sin that dwells within us. Last Sunday, Nathan told us that he's giving up Lent for Lent, and probably for just this sort of reason, I think it's fair if the traditional Lenten disciplines like prayer and fasting and almsgiving become an organized effort in personal failure, then I'm not sure that they are helping us to be disciples of Jesus, the Jesus who came to free us from shame. Now, if you are Paul, the answer to your Lenten failings might be to forego uh, laying claim to shame, but instead to project it, that is to blame it on the sin that dwells within, like some kind of intestinal parasite, or to blame the sin on those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, as this morning's lesson described them, all of which are very convenient ways to deflect attention from what does dwell within us, a very good and holy desire, a desire to be more like God, and thereby, by deflecting that, to avoid taking responsibility for whatever gets in the way of our holy desires. Which is one of the reasons I really like the historical spiritual practices of Lent. They force me to reckon with myself and what I actually want not so that I can feel bad or so that I can blame the sin within me or the enemies all around me, but so that I can come to terms with my deepest desires, which usually means I gotta face down all my lesser desires, all the ways in which I want what I really do not want. Jesus, what did you want? In today's gospel, we heard him say, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Oh my goodness, that's such a glorious maternal image. I deeply love it. And yet I think our first lesson points to a similar desire within a more masculine sensibility. Count the stars if you are able to count them, the Lord said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. What God wants, God's deep desire, is to create a family, to gather and to guide a faithful people. 
That's evidently not what Jerusalem wanted, though. It had no desire to be the place of God's gathering, or so Jesus alleged. And worse, it was the city that kills prophets. Now, the discourse we heard in uh, today's gospel lesson was not just an indictment of the known sins of the city, but of course, a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death. He was the prophet who was casting out demons and performing cures. On the third day, his work would be finished by that fox, Herod, whose desire was death. In a city almost 7,500 miles from here, some white supremacist terrorists desired death. I spent a bittersweet Thursday evening on the phone with Chris Lynch, our beloved former organ scholar, He and Trinity Choir member Kim Walker were locked down in the Anglican Cathedral in Christchurch, New Zealand, as armed assailants were slaughtering Moscowers during their Friday prayers. It's across the dateline, remember? I raged and grieved with Chris and Kim. I assured them that we at Trinity loved them and were praying for them and for the people of their host city. The ironic thing is that Christchurch is really not known as a city that kills prophets or anyone else for that matter. The police don't even carry guns. In international context, ours are the cities known for killing. For killing people of color, for killing people of faith, for killing school children, for killing people over political ideology and perceived personal slight. Chris told me that New Zealanders were shocked by the tragedy itself, but equally so by the realization that such a hateful thing could even happen in their country. Now, in that sense, we North Americans, who saw 340 mass shooting incidents in 2018 alone, are perhaps a bit closer to the truth that Lent would expose We know all too well that sin dwells in our midst, not as a kind of parasitic object of personal shame, but as that banality of evil that humankind is capable of when our worst fears and most selfish desires are encouraged. And the corruption of our desires begins at home. We, like the residents of Jerusalem, are perfectly capable of resisting God's call to gather in community. I myself have certainly walked out of plenty of gatherings where I just didn't agree with the message. We have been known to prefer the shallow comfort of disdain and contempt over the costly grace of finding common good. I confess that I've not always been a big fan of the American Enterprise Institute, but this week Arthur Brooks caught me up short in his New York Times op-ed entitled, Our Culture of Contempt. Our nation is more polarized than it has been at any time since the Civil War, he observed. You could say the same thing about other nations as well. And it is not just contempt, And it is not just a problem of incivility or intolerance, he argued. It is the fruit of the much more dangerous practice of contempt. And not just contempt for other people's ideas, 
but for other people themselves. In the words of philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. What a short trip it is from contempt for another to desiring the destruction of another. Herod knew contempt and its unholy desire for death. And it would seem entirely reasonable that Jesus, knowing that fox Herod, would indeed kill him. That Jesus would express contempt for Jerusalem in return. Would condemn its errant ways and corrupt leaders and get himself far away from that city. But Jesus didn't, or perhaps couldn't bring himself to do that. I'd like to believe that Jesus didn't abandon Jerusalem because he knew his truest desire. He longed for Jerusalem to live into its vocation as the gathering place for all God's people. He wanted that even more than he wanted to preserve his own life. Even with the shadow of the cross looming over him, he still evoked that beautiful tender image of the mothering hen. He still longed to gather the people of Jerusalem. He longs to gather the people of Christ Church, Anglican and Muslim and atheist and terrorist alike. He longs to gather us even now. So here's the good news that looms just over the horizon during Lent. Violence did not have the final say over the ministry of Jesus Christ. It does not and will not have the last word for the city of Christ Church or Aleppo or Portland. But neither will violence redeem or save anyone. The contempt that fosters violence will not redeem or save anyone. It is the teaching and witness of Jesus that will. His way is no easy discipline for Lent or any other time, but he stands in our texts and in our midst, inviting us to let go of our lesser desires. In Jesus' name, we can exchange the desire to be right for the desire to be loving. We can exchange the comfort of contempt for the costly grace of connection. We can desire the well-being of another over the familiarity and safety of the status quo. We can approach and remain in the risky places when it seems even more comfortable to go away. And we can insist that we all belong under the wings of the same loving mother. We can try to be that community gathered in God's love until we fail. We can try until our hearts break, and then we can try again. And that, my friends, may well redeem us all. Amen.